Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 29. This is a familiar passage of scripture to some people. I'm going to start teaching this week on how to receive God's best. And before I can actually teach you how to do it, there's some points that need to be made. And I want to use these verses here in Jeremiah chapter 29 to get into this. Most people are aware of Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. You know, some uh, translations will say a hope in a future, and this is stated all different kinds of ways, and, and uh, those are fine. But I like this because it says to give you an expected end. You know, I've seen some people recently that as they get older, uh, they just get sick, things happen, and they just fall apart. And there's a lot of people that don't have any confidence because they see so many people fail and get Alzheimer's and have things like this happen. And they just think, well, you never can know exactly what's going to happen. No, God's plans are to give you an expected end. He has prophesied things over you that no sickness will come nigh your dwelling. No plague will come nigh your dwelling. It says what we have is superior to what Moses had. And he was 120 years old and his natural force wasn't abated nor his eyesight dim. And I like the way this is stated because you know what? I can say that this is God's plan for my life. And if I will cooperate with it and just trust Him and believe Him, I can have an expected end. I don't have to be fearful about everything going south. I've seen so many ministers, I'm sure you have too, who started out good and then they get caught up in money or uh, with their power and they get into sexual sins. They misappropriate money. They do whatever. And you see so many people fail you know, there's a tendency for you to think, well, what makes me think I'm going to make it? Because God has a plan for an expected end. And, and if I'll just cooperate with him, I can get there. Amen. So real quickly, I, I'm going to do this quickly in the name of Jesus. But let me just real quickly put this into context for you. Go back to the first verse of this 29th chapter. And this is Jeremiah writing to the people who were taken captive and put into exile in Babylon. And so Jeremiah is writing to them and it says in verse 1, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captive and to the priest and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon after that Jeconiah the son of, I mean Jeconiah the king and the queen and the eunuchs and the princes of Judah and Jerusalem and the carpenters and the smiths were departed from Jerusalem. Anyway, if I had time, we could go into a whole history lesson here, but this was a bad scene. Nebuchadnezzar actually conquered Jerusalem more than once. And the first time he was pretty gracious unto him and left many of them there and they rebelled at him. And so he came back and he destroyed everything. He put out the eyes of, I forget the king, I think it was Zechariah or... Anyway, uh, don't quote me on this, but the king that resisted him, he actually brought his children in front of him, killed them in front of him, and then put his eyes out so that he would live the rest of his life with this memory burning in his mind. And he took all of the Israelites captive and took them to Babylon. And I, I mean, he just devastated Jerusalem. It was terrible. And these are the people that Jeremiah was writing to. 
And the reason I think it's important for you to get this in context is because we turn over here and read Jeremiah 29, 11 and just think, oh, God's got great plans for us. And this is for the people who are ministers or the people who are prosperous and the people who everything is going good. But he was writing this to people who were carried captive. They were being treated as second-class citizens. They were in a captive land. Everything in their life was bad. It would be comparable to, you know, you may think that we have a few problems now. What would happen if we were conquered by another country? What would happen if the terrorists took over? What happens if they impose Sharia law here and all of us were infidels and they're out killing everybody that they possibly can? And if you were living in a situation like that, that would be the type of people that Jeremiah was writing to. And yet in the midst of this terrible situation, he says... That God says, but I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. It is not God's will for us to suffer and go through these things. It's not God's will for this nation to collapse. It's not God's will for you to be sick. It's not God's will for you to be poor. It's not God's will for you to be oppressed. And yet all kinds of people find themselves in that situation. This is the type of person that Paul, I mean, that uh, Jeremiah was writing to right here, people that were in terrible situations, much worse than any person's situation in this room. And he's saying, I know the thoughts that God has for you. He was speaking for God. I know the thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. And people just think, well, if that's God's will, then how come I'm in this situation? Look at the next few verses. In verse 12, Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me, and find me, and ye shall search for me, when, when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord. In verse 11, it expresses God's will, but then it starts talking about that you have to seek to find. You have to knock before it's open. Amen. You have to ask before it's given. And people say, well, I've done all of that. And it says, you shall seek with all of your heart and you shall find me when you seek with all of your heart. I've ministered along these lines before and had people come up and say, but I prayed and asked God for healing and I didn't get healed. Well, all I can say is God's not a liar. And so it must be that you weren't seeking with all of your heart. And the reason I bring these verses out is because as I start talking about how to receive God's best, this is one of the things that I think is so important. Most people aren't really looking for God's best. They might desire it, but they aren't pursuing it. They may ask for it, but they aren't seeking with all of their heart. Another way of saying this is that as long as you can live without God's best, you will. But when you reach a place to where I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, I'm being sick and tired of being poor and of being sick and of having problems. And I am going to seek with all of my heart. God, I'm giving you everything that I've got. I am not living this way any longer. You've got to get that kind of an attitude. You've got to get to where there isn't any quit in you, to where there isn't any second best in you. Al and Angie gave a testimony that, you know what, they could have gone with the medical profession and the things that they were saying over them, and yet they knew it was God's best for him to be healed and not have to go through surgery, not have to go through 10 months or whatever it was 
of all of these things. And so they just believe for God's best. Did you know most people, they might pray for God's best. They might passively ask for it, but they will settle for less. And as long as you will settle for less than God's best, you will. That's what these verses are saying. Here's my will. They're thoughts of peace. I want to give you an expected end. I want to see you prosper the way that I've prospered other people in the word. That's God's will. But you will seek and you find when you search with all of your heart. As long as you can live without victory, you will. As long as you can live with sickness, you will. As long as you can live with poverty, as long as you can live with not reflecting Jesus, you will. But when you make a commitment that, you know what, I'm just, I want God's best. That's a big statement right here. And I, you know, the Lord woke me up about a month ago and I preached this message all night long during my sleep. And I just felt like this is what God wants me to minister to you. And the very first thing I did, the Lord just kept saying it over and over and over about people aren't looking for God's best. They will settle for second best. You know, I had a man come one time that wanted prayer. And he told me that he had a terrible pain in his neck and because of it, he couldn't sleep and he was in constant pain. He was having all kinds of problems. And then he says, and I've got a problem that goes down my spine and I've got back problems. And he says, I've got hip problems. I've got a sciatic nerve that goes down into my leg and into my foot. And he said, I've got neuropathy. And he just named five or six different things. But then he says, but the pain in the neck is really the hard part. If I could just get God to heal my neck, I can live with the rest of it. And I looked at him and I said, well, I understand. I said, if we ask God to heal your neck, your back, your hips, your leg, your sciatic, your feet, all of those things at one time, the lights in heaven might dim. I'm not sure God could pull that off all at one time. I said, we better just ask for one thing and not impose on him too much. And this guy just looked at me and he said, that was pretty stupid, wasn't it? I said, that was real stupid. I said, why would you settle for back pain if God heals your neck, but you could live with the rest? I said, it's that very attitude that keeps you sick. If you can't say amen, say oh me. You know, there's people right in this room. And again, I, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not here to condemn anybody. I don't want you leaving here saying, oh man, I'm not doing this. I'm not believing for God's best and leave condemned. But I'm trying to motivate you that before you can start walking in God's best, you got to get to where that's what you desire and you aren't willing to live a substandard life. You aren't willing to settle for second best. And I am just appalled. I minister to a lot of people. I talked to a lot of people, and I am appalled at how people aren't even shooting for God's best. I may not obtain everything that God has for me, but you know what? I'm shooting for it. I'm shooting for the stars, and if I miss and hit the moon, that'll be more than most people do, amen? But there's a lot of people that you're shooting at nothing, and you're hitting it every single time. There's people that are afraid to raise your expectations because hope deferred makes the heart sick, Proverbs 13, 12. And so rather than even being disappointed, people just don't even want to try because I, I might be disappointed. 
This is one of the gripes I have with the medical profession, and I understand why they do it, because of liability and being sued and so many different things. But I guarantee you, you go in, they are not going to instill hope in you. They are going to paint the worst case scenario. They are going to make aware of everything because they don't want to get your hopes up. That's exactly what you need to do is get people's hopes up. You need to get them to believing that, praise God, I can overcome this thing. And yet it seems like that the medical profession, the lawyer profession, the financial realm, everybody is just trying to get you to look at the worst case scenario, expect the worst. We feel that that's wisdom. And I tell you what, we need some hope today. And people are afraid to encourage you because it might not work and then you'd be disappointed. Well, you get over it. We don't want competition in school anymore because somebody might not feel like that they're as good as somebody else. Well, you aren't. <laughs> Amen. And it'd help you to realize that, hey, I got to try harder because I'm not talented in this area. And it'd make you, competition is good. But you know, we're so afraid that somebody's going to feel bad and have a little bit of low self-esteem. Man, just pull your thumb out of your mouth and grow up. Amen. You know what? You need to go to believing for something more. And I tell you, if you are a typical American Christian, you are so plugged into this society and into this world, you are not plugged into God as well as the average Christian prior to us have been. We are being inundated with the sewage of this world coming into our house. We pay big bucks to have it come in. And you watch all of this stuff and it influences us and we kind of just take an average and we're, we're about like everybody else. But we aren't looking at God's standard and what God wants us to be. What does God say about you? Are you really shooting for God's best? Before I can teach you how to receive God's best, I've got to make you dissatisfied with second best. I've got to make you dissatisfied with being mediocre. And I'm not trying to condemn you. But I am trying to motivate you. And I tell you, most people are not shooting for God's best. We have, we have uh, dumbed down the gospel so that it's just, you know, is so watered down. It's just a matter of get saved so that you won't go to hell, but instead you go to heaven. And then most people aren't walking in victory. There's many people, if you were arrested for being a Christian, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict you. You're as sick as your neighbor. You know, I was at a meeting in South Africa and I had somebody write in and say they were appalled because out of that group, I bet you 90% of the people were sick. 90% of the people were struggling. And they said, I go to all kinds of things and I never see as many sick people anywhere as in the church. What's wrong with the church? Now, am I saying that it's wrong to be sick? No, but I am saying that, you know what? Christians ought to be walking in the supernatural power of God. We ought to be seeing the miraculous power of God. And yet I can guarantee you, Christians are about as sick as their unsaved neighbor. There are many of you that if the flu season comes around, if the hay fever comes around, you're as sick as the neighbor next to you that doesn't even know Jesus. And some of you, oh, well, I've had it all of my life. I'm just trying, I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm just saying, you know what? You have settled for second best. That is not God's will. 
You ought to be walking in divine health. You ought to be walking in prosperity. When other people are stressed out and fearful, when the terrorist attacks happen, did you know that there's a lot of Christians that said, I can't fly. You are absolutely petrified of flying anymore. Just like people that didn't know God. There are some of you that have phobias about flying, phobias about height. Some of you are thinking, man, you quit preaching and you're meddling. There's some of you that are afraid to get out at night and you're, there's no difference between you and a person that doesn't even know the Lord. There ought to be a difference. And I'm saying most Christians really aren't shooting for God's best. Really, most Christians allow sickness, poverty, oppression, discouragement, to just kind of simmer in their life. They put up with all kinds of sicknesses, things let, as long as it's not life-threatening, as long as it's just an inconvenience, but it's not a major thing, then we put up with it and we just embrace it and allow this. And then when the doctor says it's beyond his ability and you're going to die, then we get serious and we go to God and try and get healed. But you've been letting these seeds of sickness grow in your life constantly and, and people can't make a distinction. Well, I, I take a pill for my headache. I'm not against taking pills. I just take the gospel. <laughs> I'm not saying that God hates you if you take a pill. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I am saying that, you know, if you aren't faithful in that which is little, you won't be faithful in that which is much. When are you going to start exercising your faith and believing God? Are you going to wait until it's incurable and the doctor says you're going to die and then you're going to whip out these muscles that you haven't used in 20 years and try and over-exercise them and overcome? I mean, when are you going to start believing God? Well, it's just a headache. I can get over it in 30 minutes if I take a pill. But you know, it might take you a day to stand and believe God, but at least you're building your strength and exercising. And then when you see God come through, you're a little bit stronger. Next time you'll be able to deal with the cold. And the next time you'll be able to deal with the flu. Next time you'll be able to deal with the fever blister or a pain. And pretty soon before you know it, you're able to heal cancer and walk and see the dead raised. But there's a lot of people, well, I It's just so much easier. I mean, I would have to miss as the stomach turns on the television and be in there praying. God forbid that I have to get into the word and study or do something like that. I mean, man, I got my sports to watch. I got so many other more important things than the word of God to do. Amen. In a sense, I'm preaching to the choir because you're the ones that came out in Houston traffic on Thursday night. You're the fanatics. And so you're probably more motivated than the average person. But I'm just telling you that, you know, one of the reasons that you haven't seen this peace that God has planned for you and an expected end come to pass is because we hadn't sought with all of our heart. We just pray and say, God, I've got five minutes before my favorite, uh, you know, adultery and fornication show comes on and I've got five minutes and if you can change my life, here I am. I'll give you five minutes. That's not seeking with all of your heart. Don't preach me, shout me down because I'm preaching good. 
You know, let me take just a couple of examples. Turn over here to Romans chapter 13. And again, let me preface what I'm saying. I am not trying to condemn anybody. And nobody gets into God's best all at once. There are steps and stages and we're moving that direction. Some of the things I'm going to talk about, I hadn't arrived in this area, but I've left. I'm moving in that direction. Don't take what I'm saying as God's mad at you or angry. God loves us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. God's not mad, but I am trying to say that God has more for us than what most of us are experiencing. And God has more for us than what most of us are even desiring. We aren't even desiring God's best. We have been raised in an ungodly system. And some of you, well, no, this is the Bible belt. This is the belt buckle on the Bible belt. <laughs> You'd be surprised if you could see things from God. When we stand before the Lord, we're going to be shocked. Saying, you mean I didn't have to put up with this? I had this power on the inside of me. Romans 8, I think either 17 or 18 says that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Not to us, but in us. When we stand before the Lord and we know all things, even as also we're known, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, then all of a sudden we're going to look and say, you mean I had the same power that raised Christ from the dead? Living on the inside. I thought it was out there and the demons were blocking it and I had to pray through it. No, it was on the inside of you the entire time. And you mean I had raising from the dead power on the inside and I suffered with pain my whole life. I suffered with poverty. I went around depressed and discouraged when the whole time Galatians 5.22 says, I have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance living on the inside of me. I was asking God to give me joy when the whole time I had joy on the inside and I didn't know how to release it. We're going to stand before God and we're going to be just devastated. I think this is why it says he's going to wipe tears away from our eyes. It doesn't mean it's because we're all going to limp into heaven and we're just going to barely get there and we're going to be crying and oh, finally we get to our last reward. No, it's going to, we're going to be there. And when we see what we could have had and all of the provision that he made and how we missed it, we're going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing teeth and God's going to have to wipe tears away from our eyes and say, it's okay, you made it. But I tell you, we're going to be shocked when we, God, why didn't you answer that prayer? And it's because it was a stupid prayer. We pray things like, oh God, just come down and meet with us. Oh God, be with us tonight. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And yet we're praying, God, come and be with us. How's God going to answer a stupid prayer like that? Well, Nobody yelled. Nobody jumped. There wasn't a goosebump going up and down my spine. Nobody rolled on the floor. Nobody shouted. We didn't see the glory of God. Well, you carnal thing. You should have just believed the word of God when it says that he's with us and just believed it. What? Anyway, I could get off and preach on all that. But look at this in Romans chapter 13. He's talking about paying taxes. I won't read all of that or I'll preach on that. 
But look at this one verse here in Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Did you know that the scripture says, owe no man anything? And some people, well, this is talking about that you show love and you do all this. It includes that, yes. But if you read it in context, he's talking about taxes, pay taxes, render unto Caesar what is due unto Caesar. You pay your bills. Don't owe any man anything. And I'm aware, and again, please, I'm going to, I can empty this place real quickly. (laughs) Because there's virtually nobody in here who lives by this scripture. Uh, I'm not condemning you or anything, but I'm saying that this is talking about don't owe anybody money. Some people interpret this as there's good debt and there's bad debt. That if you're buying an appreciating item like a home or something, that's good debt. And you know, I'm not even going to go there and argue about that. But I'm just saying that, does anybody think that debt is better than being debt free? I bet you the majority of people in this room believe that. That's what I I think, just based on actions. Again, I use this during the... uh, Offering, but you know what? Most people, let's say that you live in a house that's 1,500 square feet, and if you won the lottery or if you got a promotion, what do you do? Instead of taking that money and paying off and becoming debt-free and then saving your money and buying things, we go out and we will increase our indebtedness because now I've got an extra $1,000 a month coming in or whatever it is and we will live right up to that limit and put ourselves back in the same position and just get bigger of all of these things and be under the same deal and actually in the long term be worse off as far as our long term indebtedness. The average American doesn't think in terms of what you owe, it's about can I make these monthly payments. That's how they advertise cars. They don't sit there and say that this thing's worth 20000 30000 50000 or whatever, but the payments are 199 a month. You can do it. And what they don't tell you is it's over five years. You know, this is just andeology. I can't show you a scripture on this, but I'll, I'll tell you that if you go buy a car that you pay out over five years, just bend over and let me kick you. The average person isn't going to drive that car for five years. You'll never get it paid off. You're paying something like 90% or more interest on the front end of that thing. All of the actual payments come at the very end. And if you have a wreck, if your car blows a gasket, if anything major happens, you're going to have to trade and get a new car and you are going to wind up upside down. Don't raise your hand if you've ever been upside down in a car loan. But I can guarantee you probably the majority of people in here have been upside down because you've paid something out of five or six years. The chances of you keeping that car six years and being pleased to keep it six years are virtually nothing. And you're going to wind up trading it in, taking all of the main principle that's at the end of that thing and rolling it into a new one and creating a bigger debt and you're just digging yourself a hole. We do the same thing with credit cards and all of this stuff. Look over here in Deuteronomy chapter 28. 
this goes right along with what I'm saying here, but Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's giving the blessings and the cursings of keeping the law. And here are the blessings that will come upon you through your relationship with the Lord. And man, they're all good, but for time's sake, let me just jump on down in verse 11, Deuteronomy 28, 11, and the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. You know, I could comment on every one of these verses, but there are so many Christians that I've prayed for that don't have children. And they pray and they ask God for it. But you know what? Again, this isn't something that most people see as one of their kingdom rights. It's like they pray and if they don't see results, well, then they just abandon it. And yet this promises that he will make you plenteous in the fruit of your body. If you put this together with Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says there won't be a single one that casts their young, which is talking about a miscarriage. Did you know you can stand and believe God and you won't have miscarriages? Am I condemning you if you've had one? No, I'm just saying that that wasn't God's best. And one of the reasons that it happens is because we aren't strong in this area. And when problems happen, we don't know how to stand. And Satan is keeping us from experiencing God's best. But there shouldn't be miscarriages among Christians. Not saying that you're sinning. If it happened, I'm just saying God has something better for you. God wants you to be plenteous in your in the fruit of your body and in your goods and in all of these things. And then in verse 12, the Lord shall open unto thee his good uh, treasure, the heavens, to give the rain unto thy land in his season. You know what this means? Is that you can break droughts. If you would sit there and say, I don't have to have a drought. You can pray. And God will heal your land and send the rain. And yet, how many Christians think, well, that, that's a little fanatical. We can't affect the weather. Well, just tear this page out of your Bible. says, He'll give rain unto thy land in his season and bless all the work of thine hands and thou shalt lend unto many nations and thou shalt not borrow. Now, am I saying that you're sinning if you're borrowing? No. But I'm saying that not borrowing is better than borrowing. And there's a lot of people that don't believe that. They just think, no, I... I can have it now. And so they go out and they buy a house. Did you know that the typical person, if you buy your house on credit, are going to pay two to three times the value of that house? If you buy a $250,000 house, you're going to pay probably over $700,000 by the time you get through doing it. And you know, the American culture says, oh, this is wonderful. What part of... 700,000 being more than 250,000, do you not understand? And yet most people, oh, this is good. This says that it's a blessing to lend and never borrow. And I know many of you, if I went by this, I'd never have anything. Again, you've got to be honest where you are. Jamie and I bought a house. And we paid, uh, we, we bought it on a VA loan, this $60,000 house I was telling you about. But it wasn't excessive. We, we did it less because we didn't want to be in debt. Matter of fact, we rented for I don't even know how many years, but we probably rented the first 15 or 
so years of our marriage because I knew that God had me moving and doing things. And I wasn't going to sit there and tell God, well, I've got, uh, you know, it's a bad economy and it might take me a month to sell my house. Jamie and I have always been in a position where within two weeks we could be gone anywhere on the face of the earth. Because we didn't want, you know, the scripture says over in uh, Proverbs chapter 6 that the borrower is servant to the lender. And that word servant there is slave. You become a slave to the people that you owe money to. And if you don't think so, just don't pay them and see how it goes. You are in bondage. You are slave to the people you owe money to. So because of that, we rented for a long time. And then uh, every house we rented, they would turn around and we'd fix it up and we'd bless them and they'd wind up selling it. And the last house I think that we rented, we actually had the uh, people, they were military, and they said, we're going to be gone for six years. This is guaranteed for six years. So we took it for that reason. Within three months or something, they put it up for sale and sold it out from under us and we had to move. And finally I said, you know what? The borrower is servant to the lender. I don't like this debt, but it's, it's bondage to have to move every three months because of the whim of my landlord. So we finally went and bought a house. I'm not saying that it's sin. I did it. But you know what? We, we didn't just do it quickly. We did everything we could to try and do things. But finally, this we just had a deal given to us. A guy built us a house at at least half of what it would have cost normally to build it. And so we took the deal. We went in debt. But you know what? We paid it off just as soon as we could. And we've been debt free for years. We buy our cars cash. We started out buying cars that weren't the nicest cars. But we bought cars that we could pay cash for. And then we took the money that we would have spent on car payments and put it in a savings account and let it made money and then we went and bought cash for cars. I've gone in debt. God's not mad at me. Our ministry right now has some debt on it. But you know what? We finished out a 3.2 million renovation of the facility we moved in debt free in 14 months we got that. And we've added to that probably another 3 or 4 million. We probably have, counting all of our stuff, maybe 20 million dollars worth of facilities and, and things like that. And we owe about three, four million bucks or something, which I'm not condemning you because I am there. But I'm saying that this isn't God's best and I'm working everything I can to get it paid off. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we're wrong or sinning, but I'm saying that to embrace this and want to live the rest of your life paying two and three times what everything is worth, you aren't even shooting for God's best. None of us have arrived. So wherever you are, praise God, just thank Him that He loves you in spite of this. But I'm trying to motivate you that there is something better in this area of finances, most Christians don't even think about it. Well, this is just totally normal. And they are hocked up to their ears. The number one problem in marriage is finances because people are just maxed out. We have a recession. And you can't, you can't last more than a week. Because you, you are just, your cash flow, you, you just got everything maxed out. That's not God's best. You're putting yourself under pressure. You're causing problems in your marriage. You're causing health problems because you're stressed out. 
And I'm saying, we aren't, most people aren't even shooting for God's best. If you aren't there, don't be condemned, but don't be complacent. Realize that there's something better than what's called the American dream and just living up to your eyeballs in debt and paying two and three and four times what everything is worth. You know, there's multiple things that contributed to this recession, but one of the biggest things was people's greed. They took, they refinanced and took out house loans with zero uh, principal payments. Just pay the debt. Just pay, just pay the interest and don't pay off any principal whatsoever. And because of that, it lowered your house payment. That allowed you to get a bigger house and indulge your lust. And then when the bubble pops, all of a sudden now you got to start paying some principal, which why in the world would anybody go get a loan that never paid off your principal? Why would we have an adjustable rate mortgage unless you knew that you're moving in the next year? And, you know, there are some situations where it might be justified, but majority of people, it's like, oh, five years away, everything adjusts. And let's just roll the dice and see what the interest rates are then and, and live in the biggest house that we possibly can and put yourself under bondage so that if the interest rates go up, you kill yourself. And that's what happened. It's just nothing but lust and greed. And you know what? Christians shouldn't be in this system. And if they're in the system, they ought to be getting out just as quickly as they can. Most Christians aren't shooting for God's best. This right here says, not to say you're sinning, not to say God's mad at you. But you know what? The borrower is servant to the lender. And you can, God's best is for you to be so blessed you owe no man anything but to love one another. Most Christians, that's not even your desire. Or maybe it's something, oh God, help us to get out of debt as you go buy something on credit. You know what? You do not have to have the latest 4G phone if you've got a 3G that cost you four or $500 and works just fine. Is God mad at you if you have a 4G phone? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying... If you don't have the money to pay for it, why don't you just become satisfied with something that is better than anything that you've ever had in your life before, but it just doesn't have the latest bell or the whistle on it? And why go in debt and obligate yourself and add, well, it's only 20 or $30 per month and you add that to all of the other hundreds of dollars. And before you know it, man, you've got to have $5,000 a month to make your payments. And then you're saying, God, why aren't you coming through? That's poor management. And I am not against anybody. God's not against you. If you go out of here saying that I condemned you for being in debt, you're lying or you're just stupid or something. Because I'm not saying that. All right? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that that's not God's best. And those of you who would fight... That being in debt and being under this bondage is superior to being debt free. Your elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor. You just, something's wrong with your thinking. You've been brainwashed by our American lust. All of the advertisements, man, they don't care about you being debt free. They are trying to entice you in and they make things free and easy and no payments for 12 months. People go for that. 
Oh, thank you, Jesus. I know some of you aren't blessed by this, but I'm trying to help you. Before you can receive God's best, you got to quit embracing and loving second best. Before you can really begin to prosper, you got to quit paying two and three times what everything is worth because you can't wait six months. You got to have it right now. So you're going to pay two and three times as much money because I need it now. You got to get over that attitude. You got to get to a place to where, you know what? I'm going to live debt free. I'm not going to owe any man anything. And I may not be there now and I'm not going to sit there and just give away my house or let it be repossessed and ruin your credit rating so that you can get out from under it. Use some wisdom, but at the same time say, God, give me a plan to get out of this thing. And I don't know everybody here individually, but you know what? Many of you could live in half of what you've got. Many of you wouldn't have to buy a $60,000 car. You could go buy a $15,000 car that would be brand new, that would do just as well. You could decrease your pressure. You could do a lot of things to start moving towards this and then take all of this money, take the extra thousands of dollars you're spending per month and put it in a savings account. And when you need a new car, buy it cash. You'd be surprised what that will do. I got a long story, I won't go into it, but Jamie and I bought a car that we went to one dealer Asked him about a car and went across the street. He called us. He says, I saw you went into this deal because we were going to pay cash. And he says, what deal did he give you? I'll make you a better deal. So I said, well, we'll come back over. So we went over here and this dealer saw us go into this. And he says, what did he offer you? And did you know they got to fighting with each other and they were calling back and forth and we knocked, I don't know what it was, four, $6,000 off the car, just not even doing anything. Because you know what? When you're paying cash, people, uh, they like that. It gives you leverage. You know, God's bet, most of us aren't even shooting for this. I'm telling you, God has a better way. A much, much better way. And you know, if you've got everything paid off, and if you don't owe anything, and if you don't have any of this, these bills, you know, it doesn't take much to live. You would be shocked if you were to remove all of the things you're paying interest on and remove that and just look at what it takes you to live. You could get by on one-fourth, one-fifth of what you're doing. It's debt that is driving us into the ground and causing so much problems. Many of you are thinking, oh, I wish I had more money to give to the gospel. If you lived within your means, you could double, triple, quadruple your giving and still be more prosperous than you are. So that's just one area where, again, I'm not condemning anybody, but I'm saying, you know what? Most of us aren't shooting for God's best. Before you can learn to receive God's best, you're going to have to lift your sights away from what the world is doing and start saying, God, I want your best. What is your best? God's best is that you lend and never have to borrow. God's best is that you owe no man anything but to love another. And you know, in the area of healing, again, I've referred to this briefly, but there's a lot of people that honestly, they just put, they think that, well, we're human and it's an imposition on God to worry about my headaches, about my eyesight, about my hearing and about, you know, I've got this little ache and I've got this pain, but they don't fight 
and they don't believe that healing is just an absolute right of theirs. And so they basically just, they put up with stuff and go directions and do things that aren't God's best. Now, again, just like I was talking about finances, I'm not condemning anybody who doesn't walk in supernatural health and divine healing. But I'm saying, why would you want something less than God's best? Why would we just start putting up with sickness? A lot of it's because people really are afraid of failure. And rather than start standing and saying, in the name of Jesus, I'm walking in health. In the name of Jesus, I will be healthy. They just accept this and they embrace it and they live a second rate life because they're afraid to start confessing this because what happens if it doesn't work? Then you might look bad. It takes effort. You can't be a couch potato and walk in supernatural divine health. The word is health unto all of your flesh and life to them that find it. And you know what? For you to start walking in supernatural health, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to be like the Burks were. And I can guarantee you somebody somewhere is going to start confessing over you that, man, you just don't understand how bad this is. And you don't understand. You're over 40 and you got this. And they're going to start speaking their unbelief. And unless you're willing to stand and fight and be strong in your faith, you will be overcome by this world because even all of the ungodly realm isn't believing in divine health and the majority of the Christian realm doesn't believe in divine health. You'll even have to tell people tell you that it's God that makes you sick, that this is God's punishment upon you for your sin or that God wants to do this. It's some, he's working some redemptive thing. He's breaking you and making you better. None of that stuff's true. And I guarantee you, you're going to have to fight against a lot of people. You'll fight against a lot of Christians trying to confess over you that you're silly to believe God for his best. And they'll try and get you to embrace that you just have to be sick all of the time. You know, one of the reasons I believe that Adam and Eve lived to be 930 years old is because they didn't know how to die. You have to be taught to die. You have to be taught that there is a flu season and that you're supposed to have the flu every season. You have to be taught that there's a certain season that, you know, the colds come around and the sinus problems and that when you're over 30, you're over the hill. Adam and Eve didn't know that. They didn't even start having children until they was three and 400 years old. They didn't confess these things. They didn't believe it. They didn't know about genetics. They didn't have relatives that died of something and so they had to die of it. But now those things have happened and you have people speaking over you that this is a problem and you've got a tendency for this. Am I saying that those things don't exist? I'm saying that they're a fact, but you know what? We've got the blood of Jesus flowing through us and you can break those curses and you can walk free of that. My dad died when, I, when he was 54. I was 12 years old. But you know, my mother lived to be 96 and was healthy as a horse until about 92, 93. And yet you go see a doctor. It's just like I didn't even have this mother. They look at my dad who had heart problems. He died 12 years before he died the second time. In Houston, he was one of Dr. DeBakey's patients and he's the first person that ever lived with a human artery transplant from his heart to his knee. 
and they pronounced him dead and he was out in the hall and my Baptist pastor was praying and he stood up and he said, it's two o'clock or whatever. He says, either God healed him or he didn't. I'm going home. And at two o'clock in the morning, my dad just kicks his sheet off of him and sits up and the orderly that was there wet his pants right there in the hall. (laughs) And my dad was raised from the dead and lived infirm and So he was infirm for 10 years of my life and could hardly do anything. And people look at that, but they forget that my mother, I have some of her genes in me, but they'll never show you the positive. They'll never say, well, you could have your mother's genes in you. They'll just confess over you that, boy, you're going to have heart problems. I've outlived my dad now by seven years. And you know what? I'm healthy as a horse. And I I broke that curse over me when I was 20-something years old. And there's people sitting right here in this auditorium thinking, you know, you're a little weird. You're a little fanatical. I think you're weird. I'm saying that there's many of you, I just believe that this is the way it is and that you've embraced it and what you're doing is settling for less than God's best. Am I saying that you're a bad person? No. Am I saying that God's mad at you? No, but I'm saying, I'm trying to get you to realize that being healthy is better than being sick. And some of you feel guilt. I I couldn't do that. Why not? Because this is not what everybody else believes. Not everybody else is in the word of God. Not everybody else believes the scripture in in, uh, Psalms chapter 91 about no plague will come nigh. Well, that's in Deuteronomy 28. No plague will come nigh your dwelling. But in Psalms chapter 91, it says he gives his angels charge over us and they lift us up lest we dash our foot against a stone. They'll come out against you one way, but flee seven ways. And there's just promise after promise after promise. By his stripes, we were healed. Third John chapter one, verse two, beloved, I wish above all things, above all things. You know what that means in the Greek? All things. He wishes above all things that you prosper and be in health as your soul prospers. God doesn't want you sick. You don't have to put up with all of these aches and pains and just the little stuff that everybody has. You don't have to be with one foot in the grave because you're 60 years old. Moses was 120 years old and his natural force wasn't abated nor his eyesight dim. If Moses could live without glasses at 120, I can do it. Some people, oh, now, wait, wait, that's the problem. You know what? To you, that's something that you want to live with. You can look at the world through glasses if you want to. God doesn't care. But I'm saying you aren't walking at God's best. If he made Moses so that he was healthy and didn't even have poor eyesight, then God's best would be for you to have perfect eyesight and to have perfect hearing and have a perfect heart and have perfect blood pressure. And that's all what we ought to be shooting for. And yet there's some people afraid to do that because if you do, I might be disappointed. Well, you might be surprised at what would happen if you start believing for it. You know, one of my good friends, he's on my board of directors. This guy is, a, is an awesome guy, and, but he is a minister and he traveled 253,000 miles in one year. And I told him, many people told him he could not do that. You got to pace yourself. You can't go that often. And uh, anyway, he did it, wound up being so depleted. He went to a doctor. He had zero iron in his body and he was anemic and they put him on a year's bed rest. And man, that's just, 
That's like a sentence of death for a minister that wants to go share and do all of these things. And so then he battled depression and some things happened. Anyway, last summer he had a tumor on his colon. It was 7.6 centimeters. The doctor was a friend of his. They went to church together. They saw it. They uh, believed it was cancerous, that it had to be removed. And so... Um, Anyway, they, they told him about all this. He called his pastor in, a good friend of mine, and Greg Moore prayed for him. And when Greg prayed, he said he knew that he knew that he knew that he was healed. And they started shouting and praising God in the hospital room. He believed he was healed. But they had surgery already scheduled. And rather than do another test and see what happened, they just went ahead and did the surgery, you know, just routine deal. And when he woke up, the doctor, he was coming out from under the anesthetic. He said that the doctor, his friend, was standing over his bed looking at him. And he said, Paul, when we went in there, that tumor that had been 7.6 centimeters was down to 3 centimeters. It had turned to gelatin and it had lost its life force is the exact words that he used. But you know, the point is, that wasn't God's best. God healed him supernaturally. But he just assumed, I have to go the natural route. God's not against you going getting an operation. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I'm saying that getting healed supernaturally is better than getting operated on. And there's a lot of people that would say, no, that's not so. That's foolishness. Well, it depends on what you're believing. If you're just doing it out of whatever reason, it might be foolishness. But if you know that you know that you know that you're healed, it's not foolish to just stand and believe God. And did you know because of that, they did this surgery and they scraped his colon or, or did something during the surgery and he started bleeding internally. And I forget all of the details, but within the next week or two, he just got worse and worse and nearly died. They said he was less than three minutes away from death. And um, a nurse was trying to run a tube down his throat because she feel, felt like he was bleeding internally. His son came in who... They own a hospice business and he's seen toxic shock or I forgot the details. But anyway, they, they've seen this before and his son knew exactly what he was and he just pushed the nurse out of the way and jammed this tube down his throat into his stomach and all of this blood started coming out. He had lost 11 liters of blood internally and he was moments away from death. And he just barely lived. And so he was in this weakened state. And then they had to go in and repair the damage that had been done to his colon. And because of this trauma of having two or three surgeries back to back, he started having his heart mess up on the operating table. And when he woke up the next time, they had put a pacemaker in. <laughs> so here he is with all of these problems that arose from something where he was healed and didn't need it. Am I, am I saying you're of the devil if you go to the doctor? No, but I'm saying it's better if you don't go to the doctor, if you, if you have the faith to believe. And most people aren't even shooting that direction. You know, we had a chiropractor that came up to me here tonight and I'm not against chiropractors. Or excuse me, it wasn't a chiropractor. What do you, what do you call this? A, a, dog, a veterinarian. I don't know why I said chiropractor. <laughs> it was a veterinarian. 
I'm not against veterinarians. I got friends that are veterinarians, but you know what? I wouldn't take my dog to a vet. People think, why not? Because I don't have a dog. (laughs) If you got a dog, take it to the vet. That's fine. But I'm saying, you know what? I don't go to the doctor. You know why? Because I don't believe I'm sick. Even when I feel sick, I know that God has something better for me. Now, not everybody's there. And if you aren't to a place to believe God, please don't feel condemned. I'm not trying to condemn you, but I am trying to say that this attitude of just go take a pill, go let them experiment and poke around. They even put it on their sign. They'll say family medical practice. They're just practicing. (laughs) They'll give you a pill and they say, go try this. And if that doesn't work, come back and I'll give you another pill. They don't know. They're just trying. (laughs) I'm not against doctors. If it wasn't for doctors, all the Christians would be dead by now. (laughs) But I'm saying there is something better than just going and taking pills. Jamie and I heard about this woman that took some kind of an abortion drug and she thought it was for what? Heart or high blood pressure or I don't know, but she was pregnant and accidentally they gave her the wrong thing and she just took this pill and uh, is struggling now. Her baby, I don't know if she lost it, but anyway, is in trouble. And I just think, why do people take so many pills? Last time I I took two... um, what do you call it? I think I ha- I've had two Tylenol in 43 years because I had a tooth pulled and the guy put his foot on my chest and literally pulled and yanked me out of the chair. And after he got through doing his thing, I took two Tylenols and that's the only pill I've had in 43 years. I don't take uh, vitamins. I don't take nothing. And some people, well, you're missing it. I'm, I'm telling you, I just think that we are so quick to take medicine and drugs, if you need it, don't throw your medicine away if you don't believe God that you're healed. Don't go out here and misquote me and misapply what I'm talking about. But I am saying that if you are doing that, at least recognize that God has something better than you taking 15 pills a day for the rest of your life. He wants to get you well. You shouldn't have to regulate your body and take a pill to get up and a pill to go to bed. That's not God's best. You know, I know that there's potential for people to misunderstand what I'm saying. But the whole reason I'm saying all of this is trying to get you to realize that, you know what, most of us aren't shooting for God's best. Most of us have embraced weakness and frailty and problems and we just assume because that's the way that the world is and more of us are influenced by the world than the world is influenced by the church. And so many of us, there's no difference between us and our unsaved neighbor. We have the same poverty, the same debts, the same pressures, the same sicknesses, the same worries, the same cares. And I'm not condemning you if that's where you are, but I am trying to let you know that God made us for something bigger than this. And as long as you accept a substandard life, you'll have it. The first step to getting God's best is to recognize that the way most people are living isn't God's best, that God has more for you. And unless you raise your focus, unless you aim at something higher, you'll never hit it. The blessings of God, the goodness of God don't come in your life accidentally. 
They don't come automatically. You have to pursue it. Matter of fact, we read out of 1 Timothy and it says, lay hold on eternal life. That word lay hold means you have to grab it and not let go. You have to pursue it. You can't just sit there and passively say, God, if it's your will, heal me. God, if it's your will, prosper me. That's not laying hold of anything. We've got to recognize God has something better for us and start shooting at that. And until you do that, that's the first step. I have lots of people come and ask for prayer and they're just trying it. They think, well, everybody else prayed for me. See what you can do. <laughs> I've actually had people come before and, and I prayed for them and then they didn't show up at the meeting. And I went back and asked them and they said, oh, well, we already had made a reservation at the hospital and we were on our way to the hospital and we just stopped to have you pray and see if it'd do any good. And then they wonder, well, why didn't I get healed? That's not faith. That's not acting like you believe. And there's many of us that honestly, you're just planning on failure. You've been confessing it for decades. You've been talking about it. This is the way it's always been with your family. Everybody in your family has these problems. And you've planned on it. And then you wonder why it doesn't work. I'm not condemning anybody, but I am trying to say that brothers and sisters, there's something better than this. We don't know our inheritance. We need to start shooting for God's best. And you know, that's only half of what I wanted to say. I'm going to have to, let me just quickly say this because I've got a lot to share in this series and tomorrow I'm going to have to move on. But let me say that the other part of this title, how to receive God's best, you need to understand it's all about receiving not getting God to do it. This is another major problem in the body of Christ that people think, God, you can do anything. You could heal me if you want to, but they don't understand that God has already healed you. He placed on the inside of you the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not out there somewhere. It's inside of you. And it's not a matter of praying and, oh God, please stretch forth your hand and touch me and heal me. He's already done it. He put raising from the dead power on the inside of you. And it's you receiving by faith and taking your authority and speaking and making these things come to pass. Instead of it being passive, it's active. Instead of you asking God, oh God, Deal with this fig tree over here. You cursed the fig tree and command it to dry up. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Most of us are talking to God about our problem instead of talking to our problem about God. You're supposed to take your authority. You're supposed to say sickness in Jesus name, get out of my body. Pain, you leave my body now in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is a totally different attitude to learn how to receive from God than it is how to manipulate God and twist his arm and get him to do something. This whole concept of calling the prayer chain because God won't listen to your prayers. But if you could get a hundred people together, you could gang up on him and you could... You could get him, you could manipulate him, you could twist his arm. And I don't know why God hadn't healed me, but if we could just get a thousand people to pray, then God would do it. 
One of the worst things you can do. Now, this needs explanation, which I hadn't got time to explain it. So some of you will just, you know, if you came looking for something wrong, I'm about to give you something. Amen. <laughs> if you want to take this bad, you can take it bad. But one of the worst things you can do is call a prayer chain. Because now, instead of you praying with all of your fear and doubt and unbelief, you just had 50 people or 100 people who are saying, They're saying, oh God, heal him. And then they get off the phone and tell the next one, man, they're dying. They're dying. They're going to be dead next week, but let's pray and see if God can do something. You've just multiplied your unbelief a hundred times over. That's not how you do it. Jesus, when he saw the multitude come running together, he cast that demon out quickly because he knew that if he got all of the unbelief of those people together, it'd stop his power. I'm preaching better than you're listening. You don't have to get God to do anything. God's already done it. The Lord's already healed every person that'll ever be healed. Some of you are thinking, oh man, I can't, I needed healing. I thought (laughs) I missed it. No, he's already healed you and he put that raising from the dead power on the inside of you. And it's not a matter of getting him to heal you. It's a matter of getting you to believe that you have that power and stand up and resist it and fight it. This is what Al and, and uh, I just went blank. Angie, this is what Al and Angie did. They stood and they fought. This is what the Forsyth did. They fa- saw that testimony about Hannah And they started believing I'm healed. And they stood and they reached out and took it. This is what the Teradez did with their daughter. They stood and rebuked that thing. I couldn't tell you how many hundreds or thousands of people I've prayed for that instantly pain left. Instantly everything's better. And then they'll write back in and say, well, you know, I'm having problems again. All it was, the devil knew I'm in it. And when I pray, he leaves. But then as soon as you get by yourself, he comes and knocks on the door and you have back a pain or you have back a feeling. And instead of saying, no, in the name of Jesus, I was healed. And if I was healed, I am healed. And instead of saying, no, you just open up the door. Oh, I guess I wasn't healed. Oh, it came back on me. People don't know how to receive and they're just passive. I have people come all the time and they they say something basically that is just describing how pitiful their situation is. You don't understand what the doctors said, but you know, there's nothing that we can do. It's now beyond hope. Would you please pray and see if anything happens? Basically, they're just coming, absolving themselves of all responsibility. I can do nothing. Would you please pray? That is a recipe for disaster. The Bible says that no weapon formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment, Isaiah 54, 17, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me, thus saith the Lord. No weapon, but notice it says, no weapon formed against you will prosper. And then it says, and every tongue. You know why it's talking about the tongue words? Because that's how weapons come against you. That's how faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Unbelief comes by hearing anything contrary to the word of God. And you'll hear people speak words over you and say, you're going to die. This won't work. It's a recession. 
You can't prosper. And words come to steal. And it says, every tongue that arises against you, you shall condemn. You have to condemn negative words. And most people won't do it. They'll sit there and pray and say, oh, Father, I believe that I'm healed. And then your friend comes up and say, boy, you look bad. You look like you're sick. Have you been to the doctor? You know, I had an aunt that died of this same thing. And you know what? Those words will start warring against your faith. And instead of condemning it, most of us don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to be branded as a fanatic. And so we just allow these words to come in us and plant seeds and do all this bad stuff. And then we get by ourselves, Father, I'm, I still believe I'm healed. You know, that's not what you do. You can ask Jamie, when we're driving down the road and they come on and say, it's flu season. Have you gotten your flu shot yet? I'll say, I don't need a flu shot. It's not flu season for me. By the stripes of Jesus, I am healed. And I'll condemn those words. And I'll say, I don't have to do what everybody else does. I don't let people speak doubt and unbelief over me. And most of you think, wow, you're a little fanatical. That's the reason I've been healed for 43 years. I've had, I've had very minor, th- really the only time I got sick in 43 years was when I preached 41 times in one week. And then the next week I preached 40 times, 81 times in two weeks. And I wasted myself so badly. I had to crawl in bed and lay there for two days because I didn't have energy to get out of the bed. And then after two days, I felt pretty good. And I went and sp- split a cord of wood, which was too much, too quick. And I got tired again and I got a sinus infection for a couple of days. And that's all I've had in 43 years. And some of you, well, you can't live that way. Well, don't wake me up. That's the way that I'm living. And I've had doctor's reports say that I had incurable diseases. And I said, I refuse this in the name of Jesus. I've been told that I couldn't get a driver's license without glasses. And I said, in the name of Jesus, I can see. And I looked right in that machine and prayed in tongues until my eyes came clear. That woman just gave me the thing and she never said a word. Amen. Some of you think, well, I'd never do that. That's the reason you fill in the blank. I know what I'm saying is fanatical, but you know what? If you don't get strong in this, you're going you're gonna to be overcome by stuff. And this is where people are. They want, God's, they want God to do something, but it's kind of like, oh God, I'm powerless. I can do nothing. You've already agreed with the devil. The Bible says greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And instead of you approaching God, it's like there's nothing we can do. The doctor says it's impossible. Oh, it's a recession. We can do nothing. Instead of all that, you ought to start quoting the scripture that says that he will supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It's not according to the U.S. economy. He supplies your need according to his riches in glory. And I guarantee you there's no recession in heaven. And if there was, all he'd have to do is sell one brick from the streets and he could solve whatever problems he had. He's got a gold system that backs up his deal. Amen. You got to condemn these words. You got to say no in the name of Jesus. I will not live this way. If you don't stir yourself up, you're going to sink to the bottom. And this is where most of us have been sinking to the bottom. 
And I know what I'm saying is not comfortable. And I know what I'm saying makes some of you think, well, you're, you're saying that I'm not living in God's best. That's probably what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I'm not asking for a show of hands. But if I was to ask and hear the number of people that are totally debt free, it would be very few. If I was asking for the people who walk in supernatural health, it'd be very few. And again, we're all in process. I told you, I still, I personally, we're debt free, but in our ministry, we have some debt and stuff like this. And I'm not condemning anybody. I'm not condemning myself, but I am not wanting to stay where I am. We've got a 30 to $40 million building program coming up. And you know, I don't know if I could even qualify for that kind of a loan, but I'm not trying. I'm believing God for the money to do this debt free. That's God's best. And that's what I'm shooting for. And I'm not condemned about where I am, but I'm, I'm also not complacent. Man, I'm moving towards being debt free. I'm moving towards walking in divine health so that no plague will come nigh my dwelling. I still deal with things. I got things I'm dealing with right now, but you know what? I am healed. And because of it, I'm seeing better results than most of the people I minister to. And I believe that this attitude about God's best and not just passively asking, but understanding that he's given it to us and taking our authority, these are two of the keys. And so that's all I've done tonight is explain my title, How to Receive God's Best. Tomorrow morning, we're going to start talking about some things that I promise you, this will help you. These, these are things that have changed my life. But it wouldn't do any good if you're willing to accept less than God's best. The first step is you've got to stir yourself up. You've got to start believing God for something more. Amen? Man, I could give an invitation that would take an hour to start praying over people and doing things. You know, before I do anything else, we need to first of all give you an opportunity, if you don't know Jesus personally, that you must be born again. Amen. That's super important. Everything I've talked about is contrary to natural stuff. Many of you are very well aware of that. You're thinking, man, I've never heard people say stuff like this. This isn't normal, but this is supernaturally normal. This is God's normal. This is the way he wants us to be. And you are not going to get there without God. If you don't know Jesus personally, you must be born again. You must have his power because... It's impossible to walk above sickness without the power of God. It's impossible to live debt-free in our society today without the power of God. Not that it couldn't be done, but nobody would desire to do it. It's just so easy to go in debt and do things that the world talks about. You aren't going to fulfill this if you don't truly know Jesus. And I'm talking about something different than just religious, just something different than just believing that God exists. You have to know him personally. And there's lots of people that don't have an assurance of that. So you must be born again. And also, it's absolutely impossible to walk in these things I've talked about without the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes many things, but one of them is speaking in tongues. 
And I'm aware that there's a lot of people taught that, oh, that's of the devil. Well, I speak in tongues. I've spoken in tongues today. I speak in tongues a lot. And uh, you're either going to have to say that I'm of the devil, which some of you might be willing to say that. <laughs> or there are people that like the things that God has done in my life. My son being raised from the dead and miracles happening and things like that. And you like this, you like the fruit, but then you're going to sit there and say, well, I can't believe that that's God. I'm telling you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues, is absolutely essential to walking in victory. You are not going to walk in this supernatural power without speaking in tongues, which comes as a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, so do you believe you have to have the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? No. I believe you can go to heaven without the Holy Spirit and you can even get there quicker. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, because you aren't going to have this power, you're going to die of something. Something's going to happen. You don't have to have the Holy Spirit to go to heaven, but you do have to have the Holy Spirit if you want to see power released in your life. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. That was in Acts 1, 8, Acts 2, 4. They spoke with tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them the utterance. You need this supernatural encounter. And one of the reasons so many people are, as a Christian, are languishing is because you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have access to the Holy Spirit, but not this power, not the dunamis, the dynamite of God. And I know many of you have been taught that that's not necessary. It's not necessary to go to heaven, but it's necessary to win and operate in victory in this life. So you need that. Is there anybody here who would say, I need one or both of those?